on the walls. So <laughs> I've not taught in here for quite a while, so I don't know the habits. Nick's, Nick will hold it down over there. So I acknowledge that we are a combined group again. For those of you uh, typically in the marriage class, I believe this will be your second week. And uh, for others who have uh, survived so far, this will be your eighth week in the book of 1 John. Dave uh, Krumbacher and I have been trading on and off in the book of 1 John, this epistle. And so I welcome everyone this morning. Thank you for being here. And I want to thank Dave in particular because uh, he made a very concerted effort last week to kind of level set us as a review. And uh, we agreed again that that probably would be a helpful thing to do in general and also because we're combining again. So at my work, at my company, they call it an elevator pitch. I don't know if you've all heard of that. I'll give you my brief elevator pitch to kind of review First John just very quickly. And here it goes. John, the last living apostle, wrote to believers in a church amidst an onslaught of false teaching. And he did that so, as Christians, they, and I'll say we, can know we have eternal life. Assurance comes through tests that are both doctrinal and moral, primarily who Jesus is, and Christian fellowship that is in faith, love, and obedience. Played out in faith, love, and obedience. I'm off the elevator. Uh, John's style, as you well know, is very direct. Uh, His writing is full of contrast, stark contrast, and there is no middle ground. He does not give room for middle ground. But today we're going to start in chapter 5, which is the fourth spiral or cycle. And what I mean by that, and I think you well know this and probably have uh, picked up on this in your own reading in times past or in the, uh, the lessons so far, is that John continually is cycling back through these constant themes that are familiar. And each time he takes a pass, he looks at it a little differently. He brings in a little bit more uh, information or he... He touches on a certain area differently. So he's been spiraling three times. Here's our fourth cycle or spiral. And as Dave can attest to, I don't, I, I'm not sure if Dave's here this morning, what he can attest to, and I can as well, is very, very difficult in outlining. Uh, but we've agreed, he and I, on approach so that we're somewhat in sync. <clears throat> and in light of all that repeat, uh, repetition, there are uh, themes, major themes that bear repeating. Uh, I was struck, and I shared this with Dave uh, a few weeks back, and uh, we've, we've talked on this quite a bit. And that is if you can fast forward, and we get the ability to fast forward to Revelation 2, uh, it seems that the church in Ephesus, who is the church of, and the recipient of this letter, this epistle, uh, it seems that they passed the test doctrinally. Uh, but it seems like they're failing the moral test. And they're, you know very well what's said of them, don't you, don't you? What is said of the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2? Lost their first love. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, 
every other word in the book of 1 John is about Jesus and love. So this theme bears repeating, and it's worth us cycling through um, because we can't be numb to these things, and we can't ever hear them too much. Make sense? So I'd like to look back from Revelation with that in mind as well. As far as approach, for me, approach this morning, I'm just going to break our section of Scripture into two. Uh, We'll read each of them, highlight verses, and we'll focus on some key takeaways, and I'll do that with each of our sections independently. Um, And then towards the end, I'll pray, and we will draw it to a close. But again, I'd like to just dive right in. So, 1 John chapter 5, section 1 of 2. This is the victorious life in Christ. Victorious life of the believer in Christ. Let's read together 1 through 5, verses 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? There was a moment in the life of Peter where he directly answered a question from Jesus and it was one of his best moments. Do you remember what it was? It's in Matthew 16. Jesus says to uh, his disciples, who do people say that I am? Some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say Jeremiah, which I didn't even remember that. Who do you say that I am? What does Peter say? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds, Blessed are you, uh, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this, but my Father. John 20, the Gospel of John, Verse 31, John says it differently. He says, But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in him, you may have life in his name. So I think John probably had his buddy Peter in mind. And he certainly had his gospel resonating when he wrote this. Take your eyes and look at verse 1. Jesus is the Christ. Verse 5. Jesus is the Son of God. He bookends this little section with those two foundational truths. And I'll tell you, foundational truths that I have heard since day one in Sunday school, right? This is not new news to us. But we can't skip over how foundational and how fundamental those truths are and how beautifully they're just uh, couching this section of Scripture. Here we are again, answering the Jesus question, right off the bat. 
Christ, Messiah, human, incarnate, God incarnate, and Son of God, full deity. <clears throat> Again, almost as a point of review, uh, there's various false teachings happening at this time. False teachings that would err on one extreme or the other of that fine balance. And here, John comes to his readers with a test, supplies them with a test, so that they can know that they are a child of God. One must believe in this Jesus to be born of God. Verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. But we have to stop and pause already because that word believe means is believing, keeps believing, is continually believing, ongoing belief that Jesus is the Christ and that person has been, and that he has begotten of God. Continual faith is a result of the new birth, not the cause. Continual faith, that ongoing believing, is the result of new birth, not the cause. Another way it's said is that the faith that God grants in in regeneration of the believer is permanent. It is fixed. Again, in his gospel, which it's fun to read 1 John and his gospel almost side by side. He says that the children of God, I'm sorry, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Those that believed in his name. The phrase born of God, or maybe your translations say begotten. I always struggle with certain verses that I memorized and now I read and they're different, different versions. But begotten, born of the God, uh, born of God. That we see that three times, that little phrase in this section. <clears throat> Go back to chapter two, verse twenty nine. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been, what does it say? Born of God. Move ahead. Chapter 5, verse 18. If anyone, I'm sorry, uh, let's see here. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. So when when you hear born of God, your minds might go to his gospel and the story in chapter 3 with the man Nicodemus. What does Jesus say to, it's fundamental, what what does Jesus say to Nicodemus? Unless one is born again, cannot see the kingdom of, of God. Not a physical birth, we're talking about spiritual birth, a new birth. And so it is very, very essential that we think in terms of new nature, being made entirely new not polished or enhanced, but made brand new. For me, it's 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things passed away, new has come. And that, th- that idea is really theme to, a central theme 
that we will revisit in chapter 5 of 1 John. Next, John pulls through an essential tenet, and that's the tenet of love. Chapter 4, verse 20. Go back with our eyes there briefly. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. So again, from chapter 5, verse 1, the connection here is that loving God equals loving those born of God. And vice versa, loving those born of God, the connection is loving God. Make sense? Fundamental, but does it make sense? And I would uh, recommend going back to catch Dave's Sunday school lesson on the 19th. Who he just, I just really enjoyed chapter 4 of how he expands on this truth of love. So the test for us again is assurance. And the test specifically is do I love other Christians? Now admittedly, if I go back to this idea of new birth, for me personally, it, it's, it can be radical to say that continual faith is the result of new birth. Uh, that struggle has been there for millennia, right? And asking myself and asking what's the role that we play humanly in uh, striking that balance. And I'm going to read a quote from Daniel Aiken, uh, one of the commentators who I've leaned on, uh, And he summarizes this very, very concisely in a helpful way. So I'll read it for us. Being born of God and believing in Jesus are totally intertwined in the Bible. Being born of God, believing in Jesus are totally intertwined in the Bible and they cannot be separated. This is what's helpful for me anyway. Think of it in these terms. He continues, Born of God looks to the work of God in transforming our hearts. Believing in Jesus looks to the human response as we hear and believe the gospel. God's work is transforming our heart. Our response, that's what we need to do in believing the gospel. So we do have a human response to God's work. Is that a helpful balance to you? Chapter 5, verse 2. Let's continue on here. Verse 2. And I'm going to read a little bit into verse 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. So what then is the test? Christians obey God and they keep his commandments, one of which obviously is to love brothers, love other Christians. They're totally connected, totally associated, totally overlapping, loving God and loving others. And similar to the word belief, here, this is keeping and ongoing and continually obeying. Guy Woods points out that in verse 20 of chapter 4, which we just read, it's loving God then leads to loving, I'm sorry, loving others leads to loving God. And here in chapter 5, verse 2, he goes the other direction. It's complete reverse. Loving God is actually leading to loving others. So I think that's a, a great way to see very quickly how John in his writing points both directions of how these overlap, how they lead to one another. 
verse 3, the end of it. And his commandments are not burdensome. Uh, in a matter of weeks, I will be with all my siblings, uh, my three older sisters. It doesn't happen very often. When we're together, certainly enjoy it. Uh, it's a pretty rare occasion. I can about guarantee that at some point we will be uh, hanging out and reminiscing about growing up, about the past, and I, can, I, I will see it happen. They will begin to gang up on me and pivot, <laughs> and they will look at me, and they will say, it's not fair that mom and dad's rules did not apply to you, the young and only son that we had. And I'll have difficulty probably defending it, to be honest with you. His commandments are not burdensome. This also is linked to the new nature. What I want to keep drawing through here is that when we're created new, when we're made new, when we are not um, dominated by our sin nature, but rather redeemed, only through the new birth do we then value and esteem him above all else. And then we can even begin to delight in obeying him and seek to want to obey him. And the pivot from burden to blessing can occur, not because of a mind trick or um, forcing ourselves, but rather we're made new. So our entire perspective is different. Does that make sense? I view commandments as an opportunity to please the one I love. His commandments are not burdensome. If I could pause and bring in another example, it would be, the la- I, I believe it was the last uh, Summer Bible Institute that we had here in this church with Doug Bookman. And he talked about, and it was a tangent, it wasn't the focus, but it was something that stuck with me, and that is the Old Testament law, burden. When I read Leviticus, that's a burden for me to speak of burden. So, He points out that the dietary law, the sanitary law, the social law, the justice, the provision, the ethics, everything that's in there in the Old Testament law, uh, when you think uh, Torah, Leviticus, etc., even that was a blessing in how God preserved people and cared for them. And uh, it's just amazing. That's That's an example for me to know how God's commandments are not burdensome, even with an extreme example for me living in this day and age, looking back. But even a better picture, a more precise example is, I think, Psalm 119. Continually, the law is my pleasure. The law is my delight. I treasure it. It's condensed down to Psalm 1. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, by contrast. His delight is in the law of the Lord. He he delights it. He yearns for it. I don't see Bill White here. Whenever I read Psalm 1, I think of Bill White. He quotes quoted in his sleep. So the connection here as to the why his commandments are not grievous to us is also because, as we continue, chapter 5, verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So there's a connection here, obviously, as well. His commandments are not burdensome because we're overcomers. All the names of, of Christians in Scripture, think of them. It could be sheep, saints, brethren, body, vessels, branches, soldiers, priesthood. 
But here, the description of Christians is that of victors, winners, those who triumph. Now, those are very, very weighty terms, heavy terms. And for those in the day and age that would hear the, the original language, it's a word that's very, very familiar. And you probably can make the connection because you might have worn them on your feet this week or this morning. Think Greek mythology. Anybody? Goddess of victory. What is it? Nike. So that word Nike, victory, is, is uh, culturally it was reserved for the gods. To think of humans or mortals to ever be confident and fully unbeaten, that was, uh, that's radical language. We kind of skim over it. But by, ne- by definition, to say you're an overcomer requires something to be overcome, so we have to expand on it a little bit. Three times in our section of chapter 5 here, that phrase, overcome the world, is listed three times. And so we've got to ask ourselves, what is the world? Well, it's the system of evil. System of evil. It's, the, it's not the, uh, the physical element of our world, but it's the system of evil. Think uh, well, let's go back. Chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world, things of the world. Lust the eyes, lust the flesh, boastful pride of life. That encapsulates it all. Now, it doesn't feel like we are always overcomers. Especially if you look out current events and see what's happening in our world. But that's the wrong perspective, it's the wrong view. What is the victory here? It's our faith. And it's so hard not to just spend so much time on Hebrews 11. All I can do is just reference Hebrews 11 by example to say there are listed names, men and women, who are held up in this very way as victors, as champions. Some of them not even receiving their promises, but they got something better. That's, that's the language here with, uh, with Nikes. <laughs> And again, t- to drill this home, the sense here is that it's ultimate, it's final, it's fixed. So we can be experiencing the onslaught or just disappointed with what's happening. Again, as a citizen of this world, but now our ultimate, final citizenship is that in heaven. And again, we are overcoming sin. Why? Because we have a new nature. Okay, we have that new nature. Again, it's just uh, weaving through everything that John is saying in this chapter. We can overcome sin and we can overcome ultimately death and hell. Not only sin, but the, the punishment of that sin. We have eternal life. Go back to 2.25. Thank you for dancing around. I know I'm Thankfully, it's a smaller book. Chapter 2, 25, and this is the promise that he made to us. What does it say? Eternal life. Somebody had coffee. Finally. Just kidding. Chapter 5, verse 13, let's skip ahead. I write these things to believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know what? That you have eternal life. And what's awesome is that even later in... uh, I should say previous, not later. Previously, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he takes that idea of Nikes and he says basically super Nike, 
which I see my nephew here. If there's other sneakerheads, it probably sounds like something LeBron James is wearing or something. I don't know. Hyper Nike, super Nike, extreme victors. That's where Paul says, death is, where's your, where's your sting? It's swallowed up. He takes it up a level. <clears throat> so the idea here is that there's permanence for the believer. Again, if we take a step back, we're here to, in this book to gain assurance as Christians to, through the tests that are there. And here it is, it's permanence. How discouraging, let me ask, how discouraging if this victory, this permanent victory, this position were to come and go based on us and our, do- and, and our own variables. That's a slippery slope. That can lead to lack of assurance. So we have to understand that this is permanent. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? He brings it right back to that bookend. So my questions, quick summary application. Do you truly affirm Jesus as both Christ and Son of God, as, as Peter did in his best moment, as John does? Do you genuinely, joyfully seek to obey biblical commands? I'm not saying do you fail. I'm saying do you genuinely yearn for that? Do you love others? Lastly, do you rest in God's redeeming, regenerative, saving faith? Do you rest in yourself? All right, section two of two. God's witness for Christ. God's witness for Christ. The word witness, same as testimony, it's simply to share firsthand knowledge or experience. We know that. Another word that comes out of this word is that word martyr so you can think witness testimony and somebody who's willing to die for that account and right from the jump right from the jump chapter 1 verse 1 that which was from the beginning which i've seen which i've heard which i've touched you know john is doing that very thing right from verse 1 but here however in chapter 5 verses 6 through 12 the testimony of Jesus as God's son is, is, is expanded further, much more. So let's read verses 6 through 8. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, water, and blood, and these agree. So I have to admit, when I read those verses they are a little abstract, are they not? And there's differing uh, interpretations, but most align and agree, however. And that is this, that the water, and it's listed four times here, water equates to baptism. You know, John's own gospel opens early on in this magnificent event with John the Baptist. And I have to admit to you that I, I had to ask myself this obvious question for me in reading this. Why was Jesus even baptized? I had to like stop and hit rewind. Why is he even baptized? You know, up to that point, <clears throat> Old Testament access to God meant you had to proselytize into Judaism. Of course, there's still a heart uh, issue ultimately, but you had to commit to Judaism as access to God. And then John the Baptist comes and he's doing a baptism of repentance 
And then Jesus comes to him and he comes to him fully sinless in need of no repentance. And why was he baptized? I don't think this is a rabbit trail to get lost on. I think this is essential. And John the Piper, uh, John the Piper, John Piper, he helped me so much in this that some resources I had to go dig up. And He wanted to, this is his, his quote, he wanted to fulfill what was the righteous requirement in every sinful man. Here it is, John Piper. All the righteousness that would be required of men before the court of God, Jesus performed. So he joined fallen humanity for whom he was providing righteousness by sharing their baptism. Matthew's gospel says a voice opens up from heaven. Heaven opens up and a voice comes through. This is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. God affirmed audibly. He affirmed it visually by the spirit and men witnessed it. So this section is God's witness for Christ. First is Water, four times. Baptism. Next we have blood. Crucifixion. Three times it's listed here. There was world darkness. The curtain was torn in two. There was an earthquake. And oh, by the way, we forget the Old Testament saints just start coming out of tombs. It's just an add-in. And a hardened centurion at the cruci- uh, Christ's crucifixion is documented affirming that Jesus is God's son and he says that just by witnessing him die. And he's dying the death that makes redemption possible. Undeniable that it happened. There was witnesses. There was human witnesses. There was events that happened. We know it's true. Similar to answering why Jesus was baptized, the question is why did he die? And here's a great quote by Daniel Aiken again. Hang with me if you can. He no more believes... I'm sorry, he no more belongs. Jesus no more belongs at a baptism for repentance than he does on a cross for sinners. In both events, he identifies himself with the sinners he came to save. Testimony of Jesus, God affirms that by his baptism, by his crucifixion, he is who he is. And that is our redeeming Savior. I have to link it all together by chapter 2, verse 2. And it's a key word for us. It's a big word. I usually mispronounce it. He is the propitiation for our sins. Chapter 4, verse 10 of our book. Again, he cycles through these themes and brings them back. He loved us and he sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. That's the great exchange, right? God's righteousness, as we're reading about here from helpful uh, teachers, granted to us, and in the exchange is the penalty of our sin. That's why he was baptized sinless. That's why he died sinless. To believe in any Jesus who is not God incarnate is lying. Again, we've got to pause. We've got to ask, what is the backdrop at this time? There's false teaching. There's doctrines of Antichrist that are going on, and, and, and John is attacking that. One of the cool parts about studying it's a privilege to study John and trying to do some homework. And I love some of the extra biblical accounts of this man. He is he's so uh, awesome to read about. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, there's a lot of stories and there's a lot of documented stories that aren't in Scripture about the man John. What are his nicknames? Do you remember? 
He's got two really prominent nicknames. Son of Thunder. The one whom Jesus loved. Marshall, you're done. Anybody else? He's also called the Elder, but that's kind of a trick question. But he does justice in one of his stories to that first uh, nickname. See, he's, he's a thunderous man. And this is it. He is, uh, as was the custom of the day, going to cleanse himself at the bathhouse. Uh, think of, I don't know, there was no plan of fitness at the time. And he comes across a man who is a false teacher, and he's specifically known as Serinthus. And here is what the teaching of that man is. He's known for developing this idea. Here it is, Serinthus. Christ, a Christ spirit descended on the man Jesus at his baptism, but then it left right at the cross. It came and went. And John, it said that when he came to face to face with him in this bathhouse, you just see it as like a men's club or a gym or something, he runs out screaming, and he runs out saying that, everybody get out of here, quick, before God's righteous judgment collapses the roof on this man for his false teaching. There's a Dutch artist from the 1600s who captures that very, very story. And the subtitle, he uses the word heretic. In light of that, reread with me verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Ah, maybe he's got Serenthus in mind. Not by water only, but by the water and the blood. He's not stuttering. Okay? These truths about who he is, Jesus are under attack. I love that story. Thanks for putting up with it. Another great point that is made from a lot of the commentators, if you think about the baptism, that's marking the beginning of his ministry. Think about the crucifixion, that's marking the end of his earthly ministry. But we have the third here, and that's the spirit, and it's listed three times. Water four times, blood three times, spirit three times. And simply put, spirit is equal to truth. And that's the back half of verse 6. The Spirit is the truth. What's different from Spirit and blood and water? What's the most obvious difference of that in the list of three? What is it? Say again? Yeah, it's, it's alive. The Spirit is alive. The other things are just uh, events or happenings, right? But we're talking about spirit as living. That's the only living entity, and it sweeps from creation into prophecy, into inspiration of Scripture. It's direct in Jesus' ministry, and the Spirit comes and indwells believers. So unlike just the beginning of his ministry or the end of his ministry, the Spirit is throughout. And so if we go to verse 7 and 8 as we make our way through For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three all agree. When you hear that, you know, two to three witnesses, you probably know that there's there's some lawful compliance there in terms of the cultural norms of the day to have to bring three witnesses to to make a charge. But we're going somewhere. John's going somewhere. Read verse 9 with me. By contrast, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is what? Greater. 
For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Do we believe the testimony of men? Yes. But it isn't from those who heard his teaching. It isn't from the disciples or his followers. It isn't that centurion that was hardened. It isn't even John. John, who was at the transfiguration and had the closest human interaction of any human with Christ in history. Nope. It's from the lesser to the greater, infinitely greater, and you can't go any higher. It's God who affirms, and it's God who testifies, and it's God who witnesses to his son. Uh, Yeah, my brother will all be happy. I've got some Charles Spurgeon in here. Here's a quote. God is to be believed if all men contradict him. Let God be true and every man a liar. One word of God ought to sweep away 10,000 words of men, whether they be philosophers of today or sages of antiquity. God's word is against them all, for he knows infallibly. Said by our Lord in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 37, the Father who sent me has, he, uh, has himself borne witness about Now, back to our scripture. We're going all the way through verse 12. It's almost as if verse 9 just needs to skip right to verse 11 because here's how it flows. The end of verse 9. For this is the testimony of God that, is, that he is born concerning his son. Jump to 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. But there's almost like an interruption there and that's the course it's not an interruption but it feels that way so we got to ask ourselves verse 10 it kind of stands out verse 10 says whoever believes in the son of god has the testimony in himself whoever does not believe god has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that god has borne concerning his son and then back to that testimony john pivots from outward confession to internal confession. And he's strategic in doing that. And the point is that we, again, as believers, those who are of Christ, we have the witness of our own conversion as well. And again, it's the new life that testifies. If you're a Christian struggling with assurance today, and oh, by the way, that's implied. That's why this is written. (laughs) It's implied that there's going to be struggles. If you're a Christian struggling with assurance today, you have the Holy Spirit within you, abiding as an ever-present witness to all that your faith rests on. And what an immense and I think personal comfort that that is. Of course, by contrast, (laughs) John doesn't uh, leave it open for interpretation person who rejects and does not believe in Christ makes God what? Makes him a liar. It's said that to deny the deity of Jesus is not just unbelief, but here now it's to oppose God's affirmation, to oppose God's testimony, which is greater. Neutrality is not an option. Guy Woods says neutrality It's not an option. And John just zeroes in on what is true. But the point is, I mean, what is all this 
looking towards? What is it building to? And assurance, assurance of what? Well, let me read verse 11 and 12 again for us. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. It's black and white. If we go back to verse 25 of chapter 2, and this is the promise that he made to us. What is it? Eternal life. And by risk of encroaching on the next uh, passage that we have next time, chapter 5, verse 13, one of the best, and uh, kind of a summary statement of this book. I write these things to you who believe in the name of God, that you may know that you have what? Eternal life. That's what this is pointing to. And as we draw a close on our observations here, I just want to notice the exclusivity and the fact that there's no other substitute. That's what I have to come to grips with when I share with others, when I am wavering, if I have doubts. John, again in his gospel, John 14, 6. What does it say in John 14, 6? No other, no other way. Can't have access to the Father but through me, Jesus says. So that ends section two of two. Here's some, just two quick questions. Do you seek salvation from sin? Do you seek salvation, I should say, do you seek eternal life through anything else? As a Christian, do you rely, do you rest in the testimony of witness of Christ that's revealed to you? Do we anchor on this? That's the goal of 1 John it's an encouragement. And uh, I hope we welcome these tests and that we find comfort in knowing that we can be fully assured as believers. So mark it down. I'm done a little early. Let me draw this to a close and I'll pray for us and then we'll be we're done. Lord, what an amazing thing it is to uh, read your scripture inspired for us. As believers, Lord, there's doubts. May we be comforted by those doubts <clears throat> and find assurance in knowing you. Thank you for the tests that are outlined here for us. And though this is meant for believers, by proxy it is meant for non-believers because we come to uh, a direct choice to respond in faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be encouraged from this this book. Thank you for the man, John, and may we continue in this study and grow from it. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.